Oral Histories of the National Railway Museum. Having already spoken with John Evans recently, the National Railway Museum has been fortunate to speak further with John about his rail experiences in the Northern Territory. John, can we now focus on some of the time you spent in Darwin, but also your passion about the North Australian Railway and particularly the trains that ran from Darwin south? I was a traffic officer in Alice Springs with TAA, Trans Australia Airlines. So I'd gone north from Adelaide to Alice Springs in 1971, and it was a jack of all trades type of role. You did everything from emptying the toilet cart to checking people in with their baggage. In 1973, I was appointed airport supervisor in Darwin. You could knock me over with a feather. I sort of beat a number of older men. I was based at Darwin Airport. I lived in Stewart Park, which is just on the outskirts of Darwin itself. And I'd go to and from work each day, and part of that journey was alongside the North Australia Railway, particularly a place called the Narrows, which was just near the airport. In those days, there were almost a 24-7, an empty ore train heading south, and a loaded ore train coming north and uh, they operated basically around the clock. A not dissimilar operating pattern to the old Lee Creek coal trains where you had two concepts basically, one empty going south as I said and a loaded coming north. By this stage they were operating out the Commonwealth Railways. The Commonwealth Railways were operating uh, triple NTs on these ore trains and it took about 13 hours I think round trip. The trains would come down into the Darwin Yard, which was still showing visible signs of the November 1972 smash, mm. where um, the train got away up at the two and a half mile, otherwise called Parap. I can vividly recall seeing NT70 with its back broken and uh, just terrible. It was a big financial dent in the Commonwealth Railway's finances as well. Well, they didn't really recover the whole ore train operation after that, did they? It was never quite the same. No. Because they rode off, I think, three NT class, didn't they? Yeah, there were three NTs. It was a loaded ore train, Mm. and it came down in fine fashion only to uh, collide head-on with the Larimer Mixed, which was waiting to cross the train coming down the hill, minus a crew. I think the crew were all dismissed. Mm. But you're right, it was never quite the same again. They still had triple NTs, and there were also two Larimer Mixed trains. One of the two departures a week out of Darwin left about 2 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. I had Sunday and Tuesday off, and so... I'd take advantage of the Tuesday afternoon and I'd often follow the Larimer Mixed Mm. down to around about a place called Ferdan, which was about 20, 30 miles south of Darwin. That was invariably an NT-NSU combination. Mm. To cover the loss of the three NTs in the November smash, the um, two NSUs went north. 56 and 62. One of them was always used with an NT and the crew hated the NTs. They had this very cramped cab and you sat like a stool in a cocktail bar. Mm. Very uncomfortable and particularly in the wet season. The ore trains and the uh, Larimer mix for that matter were worked in relay and so you had a uh, a relay van immediately behind the locos and so that's the way that the train went. You You had a crew working out of Darwin and a crew resting and so the the train went on down to Larimer. Did that shunt many places on the way? 
Yes and no. Some trains uh, just went straight through, almost without a shunt, and others shunted at some most out-of-the-way places. Mm. One of the great things about the Commonwealth Railways is that they mention shunts on their train orders, which is great. So you, I, I've got a set of orders that has the Larimer Mix shunting at Winelli, which is just outside the airport, Nucky's Lagoon, Men's Lagoon, Rum Jungle, Catherine South, Tyndall, uh, and then your intermediate stations down to um, Mataranka and, and beyond. Was there a lot of coordinated transport containers and stuff like that on yes, the trains? Yes, it, it was a group called Territory Coord Transport, mm. and they would pick up a load that had come in from down south in Alice Springs and then road freight to Larimer. Oh, of course, there was no trains to Burdum in those days. Larimer was the, the point at which the highway and the, the rail line interconnected. It was quite a busy little place, Larimer. That little bit from Larimer further south to Burdum, yeah. uh, that closed way back in the 50s? Oh, yes, it was a long time ago. Because, of course, that was always planned to be part of the railway all the way down to Alice. So, obviously, with the highway and the railway meeting at Larimer, it was an obvious railhead to do the transfer. Yeah, exactly. Burden was another four or five miles further mm. south. Mm. And even in the Second World War, it was only used as a point to turn. Engines would run light to Burdum. Uh, they'd turn. I'm pretty sure the crew rest house was at Burdum. So it was often just a light engine run from Larimer to Burdum, turn and service the local and what have you, and then back to Larimer. I visited Larimer, I mean, with uh, Ron Fluck in 1992 as part of the 50th anniversary of the... Bombing Bombing of Darwin, Darwin. Yes, yes. and never been up there at all and I could see even with the remnants at Larimar must have been a massive yard and Gantry Crane was still there and amazing I think the Gantry Crane wound up in Loxton uh, as part of the uh, ANZ abortive attempt to uh, win traffic yeah. I'm not 100% sure about that so these trains were they like daily the ore trains for instance did yeah. they run every day yes you had two departures each day and uh, they didn't operate at the same time each day. The trains basically operated... Like a cyclic. Yeah, yeah. It was basically when the train was ready to go. And so the crews would book on and off at Parat. Parat was also known as the two and a half mile. Mm. And of course it, it had been associated with the rail ever since the first trains operated on the line way back when. It had pretty well gone by the time I got to Darwin, but there had been significant cattle traffic heading north, not south destined for uh, the Philippines. Mm. That market opened up in the 50s, I think, as did the means of conveying. They, uh, whilst they had some cattle trucks, they also had the sort of containerised arrangement. You had cattle, you know, you, uh, you, you might have had nine beasts, for example, in a, one of these containers. And the stock would come up to um, Nucky's Lagoon and they'd often offload there and basically rode the last few k's from Nucky's Lagoon down to the um, Stokes Hill Wharf. There's many a classic photograph of trains on the NAR with huge ant hills. Yes. Quite close to the track and I've always found that fascinating from being a young child looking at photographs of trains on the the Darwin line, it just fascinated me. But when you see them in real life, those anthills are enormous. They are enormous. And you think of how they were constructed. <laughs> because that was the almost the signature trademark with the NAR. You always associated the NAR with these massive termite mounds. Many a book I've read talks about around the turn of the century, that is the early 1900s, yeah. there was far more Chinese labourers in Australia as a whole 
because yeah. of the gold mining in Victoria. Yeah. But in the mining operations and also potato farming in the Northern Territory was potatoes apparently was enormous traffic. I find it hard to believe. This is around the turn of the century. Yeah. Well of course the presence of Chinese in the Territory was brought on by um, the discovery of gold Mm. around the Pine Creek area and sort of other minerals popped up. In that trip to Darwin I mentioned with Ron Fluck in 1992, Arnold Lockyer came with us, very strong, passionate historian of the Northern Territory, was he worked in there in World War Two in the St John Ambulance section, based in Catherine, so he had loads and loads of stories. He was so fascinated because he'd never been able to find and trace remnants of the two-foot gauge tramway at Grove Hill yeah and we found it on that trip and he was like a little kid in a <laughs> candy shop yeah. mind you the grass was six foot high yes and yes. we kept yelling out to each other because that's what Arnold told us to do I tell you I was yelling out get the snakes out of here because you could hear them (laughs) or you saw the end of them but no I'm not joking it was a wonderful experience he was so (laughs) in love with that and there are really things that stick in your mind about that whole Darwin Railway it's just fascinating history and the types of trains and when you consider the big head on prang that caused all that damage and wrecked the locomotives and then Cyclone Tracy comes along. Indeed, yes. I mean you were involved not just because of the airline side of it but Tracy was horrible for what occurred during the cyclone but also afterwards. And there were the two distinct phases, it was pre and post cyclone Tracy. Because you were involved up there weren't you? Indeed, yes, yes I mean I was TAA's man on the spot and had a fair degree of influence in the um, uh, the evacuation. I do recall being shown the uh, Bachelor airstrip yes. that was used in World War Two, which yes. from memory seemed to be very close to the railway line and almost running parallel to the railway line. It crossed the railway line. Oh, there you go. <laughs> no wonder it looked close. It crossed the <laughs> railway line. Yes, indeed. Well, didn't the trains supply a lot of the air bases with uh, aviation fuel and bombs? And yes, all yes, stuff? indeed. Yeah, all that sort of ordnance. And that was another story again, of course, the, the CAR and the role it played up to Larimer, transfer again onto the narrow gauge, the NAR. And there was a period of time where those trains uh, were destined to um, go as far as Adelaide River, which was 70 miles south of, uh, of Darwin. They didn't want trains getting in the way of the Darwin defences, and so um, pretty well all those northbound trains would terminate at Adelaide River, unload there, and come back south. Now, you spent time at Alice Springs itself, of course. Yes. And I was fortunate enough to ride on the narrow gauge GAN to Alice, which was an unbelievable journey. Yeah. But Alice Springs just seemed so busy. All sorts of freight traffic and livestock. And, of course, the passenger train, the GAN, was extremely popular. I can never forget, in my early days of in the SAR, when the wet season came, everyone left Darwin and came south to Adelaide. And yes. you had enormous, enormous numbers of passengers heading south on the GAN. Yeah. And then it would reverse itself, and there'd be others then going back up to Darwin afterwards. So, If you worked in the Territory, particularly in the public service, either Commonwealth or or NT. You're entitled to a trip south each year. For free? Yes, indeed. It was based on uh, 
the actual value of the equivalent of travel on the game. Throughout the 1970s, of course, the poor old narrow gauge line from Murray to Alice was really just run down and was getting washed out more and more often. Then yeah. it's no wonder that a lot of attention started to go to the construction, of course, which did occur with the brand new standard gauge from Tarkula to Alice Springs, yeah. which, of course, was hundreds of kilometres further to the west and taking a certainly much drier route. Yes, indeed. Um, we'd had the turning of the first sod by Gough Whitlam, I think, from memory. Yes, that's right. At Tarkula in 1975. And you're right about the narrow gauge. How the trains stayed on the track all that way, all those wheels in contact with, with the rail line itself, I'll never know. In the 70s, the gam was predominantly made up of huge bloody standard gauge carriages, oh, yes. rocking and rolling, and it's, yes. you know, at 20k or 40k, I can't remember now. A lot of it was 20k. Yeah, but the rocking and swaying of those big, big standard gauge cars. Yep. Yep. On the narrow gauge bogies on that sort of track, unbelievable. Yes, there were plenty of derailments. I can remember going down south, south of Uramina, to a uh, enormous pileup, freight trucks in all sorts of directions. As you say, I mean, how the train stayed on that track, I will never know. By this stage, of course, it was getting harder and harder to attract men to uh, go out and. Um, work on the track. I can remember going through Wongiana, the gang there, they come out of their cottages to see the train go past. I'm thinking, what's brought you to to be here of all places, you know? You had the gang, you had a cook. I think a lot of people, when they talk about the gang and know a bit about it, one thing seems to spring to mind all the time, and that's the famous Algy Bacchner Bridge over the Niels. Yes, the only bridge that has never been bridged on that entire line. Given it's isolated location, the fact that everything had to be shipped up there by rail, and uh, there's a, a quite a well-known photograph taken of uh, a U-class of all things at the approaches to the Algebacana Bridge back in the 1890s. Every other bridge, notably the Fink River, they tried on successive occasions to fix the Fink River problem, and the, the river beat them every time. Do you want to comment about the continual stories that the Algebuckana Bridge was originally planned for Murray Bridge to go over the Murray River and then they realised their mistake and had to use it somewhere? Well, it, it is utter fiction. I mean, there's no basis for that story at all. Murray Bridge, of course, is constructed in 1883, thereabout, and the a Bridge in 1891. The sums don't compute, put it that way. Thanks for listening to this oral history podcast from the National Railway Museum.